absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We see that in the book of Second Chronicles. Something we don't see but is yearned for is this also corollary truth. Absolute power doesn't corrupt absolutely if the leader is incorruptible. That's what all of the Old Testament is doing, is pointing to the, a future leader who will be perfect and who will rescue his people. The only leader that could rule with complete authority and it never corrupt him. That's what the book of Second Chronicles points us to. That's what we notice today with any leader that we're following is the, the top one, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, last week, we had a couple of the icons of the various ways that you can follow people, uh, celebrities, sports figures, government leaders, usually have some form of this that you follow them, but you follow them long enough to realize that they are in some sense and maybe in large measure and small measure, they're corrupted. They're tainted with sin. Without exception, though, the better you get to know someone, the more imperfections you are going to see. I want you to turn back to the beginning of First Chronicle of, of Second Chronicles, and uh, we're going to re- refresh ourselves. Last week we took a, a little bit longer uh, refreshing ourselves as to who wrote First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. Last week we looked at the overview of First Chronicles. This week we'll be looking at the second half of this book, if you will. The author um, was probably Ezra. We'll just call him a chronicler. And he's writing primarily for the people of Israel. When this was being written, uh, a little bit of the context of the writing of this, King Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the people and began that conquest in 605 BC. Um, Eventually the temple is destroyed in 586 And that's probably when many Israelites were brought to Babylon. You're thinking about Daniel and his captivity. Um, He was a Hebrew boy and uh, brought to Babylon to serve. And and eventually there's no more Israel. In terms of the, the timeline of the people of Israel, about 50 years later in 538, there's no more Babylon. The Medo Persian Empire rises in 538. And King Cyrus is the leader. And God directs him at the very end of 2 Chronicles as you turn the page into the book of Ezra. The way it's laid out is we're seeing that King Cyrus has, by God's or you know, mysterious working, worked in his heart to let some of the Israelites leave out of their captivity and go up and start to rebuild the temple. Probably by the time 1 Chronicles is written, the temple has actually been rebuilt. In, in 516. But in the rebuilding of the temple and later in the rebuilding of the, the Jerusalem walls, we read in Ezra and Nehemiah that there's a lot of opposition to that rebuilding. They've, they've gone through a lot and they think it's a high point. Wow, we're getting to do this. And yet they're getting serious opposition by, I believe it's King Sennacherib. He's sending people to to harass and make fun of and just constantly be a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. Remember, they're serving with the, the tool to fix the wall in one hand and the weapon in the other because there's this constant threat. That's what they're going through 
as they're given this book. These people need encouragement to continue to be faithful to God. They're being tempted to give up. Now, as we read through 1 Chronicles into 2 Chronicles, it's a very four-point outline, if you will. Um, so there's the rest of the context. The, the outline of these two books together, we see a bunch of genealogies, nine chapters of who begat who and who was related to who, Adam all the way down to David, and it's specifically focusing on the people of Judah. 10 to 29 is most of 1 Chronicles. Is, is, is given to David, we turn the page into Second Chronicles, and it's mostly the reign of Solomon for those first nine chapters. And the rest of Second Chronicles is all the rest of the kings of Judah. Do you remember the two themes of First Chronicles? God is faithful, and God is central. Well, as we turn the page into Second Chronicles, our focus is mostly drawn on that second one. God is central. And that's because of what's right in the center of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. It's, it's climaxing, it's heading toward the building of the temple. We learn a lot about David's heart to build the temple. God says, no, you can't do that. You've been a man of war. And, and so a lot of the rest of, second, of First Chronicles is given to David's preparation. He's bringing in truckloads, to understate it, of cedar and of gold and of resources. God's people are giving. He's finding uh, resources in people that are skilled to build the temple. And then you turn the page into Second Chronicles. I want you to look specifically at Second Chronicles chapter 3. Second Chronicles chapter 3. We're going to jump in here just to, to set the stage a little bit. The temple is at the heart of these two books. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Then... And this is after reading about all the ways that they gathered skill and resources. Then Solomon, Second Chronicles 3, verse 1, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Remember when David was convicted for his sin of numbering the people? And he says, no, Ornan the Jebusite, I won't let you just give me this threshing floor. I'm not going to give to the Lord that which doesn't cost me something. This is where the temple is built. Verse 2, he began to build the temple. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. These are Solomon's measurements for building the house of God. The length in cubits of the old standard was 60 cubits. Cubit, think a foot and a half, roughly, and the breadth, 20 cubits. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house. And its height was 120 cubits. He overlaid it on the inside with drywall. No, he overlaid it all of the inside with pure gold. The nave he lined with cypress and covered it with fine gold and made palms and chains on it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones the gold was gold of parvame, so he lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, and its doors, he and he carved cherubim on the walls. Look at chapter 4. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, look at chapter 5 and verse 11. Chapter 5 and verse 11. We're, we're not going to take all of our time this morning to read through all the, the extravagance of, of the temple. But we'll jump in in verse 
uh, 11 of chapter 5. The ark has been brought into the temple and, and there's celebration being given. Verse 11 of chapter 5. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, everybody was purified. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. This was loud. It was beautiful. It was celebratory. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. That repeated repeated phrase up there in verse 13, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Maybe that's Psalm 118, which repeats that phrase throughout the entire psalm. That's what, these, that's what this music is being repeated in joyful praise as the temple is dedicated. Is God pleased with this temple? Verse 14 answers that. God's presence fills the temple in response to the, 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 the seven years that it took to build this. The extravagant giving, the extravagant skill given to building the temple. There's been modern day... Uh, depictions of the temple. I I just want a little bit of a snapshot, just a picture. This is the crowning achievement of the the Israelites, you might say, the center, the highest point in Israel's history, you might say. This is the temple. Some of that stuff is a little hard to see. Um, Maybe maybe this will help. There's this, this huge, I mean, those are steps. Remember how, I don't know if we read how tall that was. It said it was, I think, 10 cubits high. So that top thing right there is like 15 feet off the ground. Um, This beam right here is 15 feet off the ground. That's as high as our ceiling is in here. Huge. And that's for the sacrifices. This huge thing made of bronze for purification. And then these pillars and carved in the pillars are all sorts of ornate things. All the inside carved with gold. It's 20 cubits wide, which would probably be about 30 feet wide. Just impeccably created. Um, here's a couple more pictures just to give you a picture. There's, this is a, if you want to look up a YouTube video, somebody recreated a three-dimensional thing where it kind of takes you through um, seeing what it looks like. The, the, the doors made out of beautiful wood, carved. Much attention to detail was given. On the inside, it's all inlaid with gold. The far, the far side of it would be the Holy of Holies that had no windows, that was always dark. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Zooming out, you're just kind of seeing, okay, this is the temple. This is the temple of God's people. This is the high point, the center of these two books. I want you to look at chapter 7. Maybe it's just across the page for you. Chapter 7, reading the text of this. Chapter 7 and verse 1 of Second Chronicles. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer of blessing for the temple, 
fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw, saw fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped. And gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. There's that refrain again. Look down at verse 8. At that time, Solomon held the feasts, the feast for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly, from Libo Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. This is one of the absolute high points of Israel's history. Now, I want us to fast forward to the end of the book, chapter 36. Remember who's reading this. These are the Israelites that are trudging along, trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're being reminded of what their fathers and their grandfathers, their ancestors have actually experienced once upon a time the high point of Israel's history. And then, at the end of the book, chapter 36, I want you to look at verse 17. Therefore, he brought up against them, this is talking about God, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. Verse 18, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. One of the lowest points in Israel's history if you picture the splendor and the glory and the joy and the celebration and God's glory filling the temple, and then you finish with that, what happened? How would it come to that? Second Chronicles shows us the centrality of God and the temple, but also a lot more of the, the everybody else in terms of how good it was King David, King Solomon, and it seems to get worse and worse a lot of the sin and the flaws. Second Chronicles shows us how God deals with his sinful people who aren't keeping him central. God blesses the faithful. God chastens the unfaithful. If you're not faithful to this God by keeping him central, consequences will follow. 
And that really helps us understand more of the why of why Second Chronicles was written. Why was it written? It, it explains and it reminds the people of Israel, it shows us why the exile happened in the first place. And it also keeps on repeating some things that remind us how to restore fellowship with God. If you want to boil the message of Second Chronicles down, you could say it this way. Because God is to be central to you, he will chasten you to draw you back to himself. Hebrews 12, God disciplines those that he loves. And the repeated part that we see throughout Second Chronicles, how are God's people to respond? You must humbly respond when God is calling you back to himself. I want you to look back at Second Chronicles chapter 7. In a nutshell, chapter 7 and verse 14, what Wayne read for us just a little bit ago. In a nutshell, we see the book, chapter 7 and verse 14. And this is Solomon's temple has just been finished, and Solomon has just finished. This is part of his prayer. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Turn back to chapter 36, a second passage to put the book in a nutshell. Two verses before the verses, the very sad verses that we read in verse 17, Second Chronicles 36 and verse 15. What happens if you don't respond in humility? Verse 15 of the last chapter, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But how did they respond? But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That's the book in a nutshell. God calls his people to humble repentance and he chastens those who don't respond. I want us to pray and uh, ask for God's help. We're going we're gonna to fly through the book and we're going to see repeated this theme of God drawing his people back to himself and the importance of our responding rightly to his work in our life. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to understand your word. We need your help to respond rightly to your word. And so uh, we ask for those, this, those things this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. An overview of the book looks simply like this. Number one, the centrality of God. It, it, if we're going to take a hike through the book and a park ranger is leading us, he's going to tell us, okay, you're going to notice these four different things along the path. And you'll probably notice them multiple times, but keep an eye on these four high points. That's what these high points are. Number one, the centrality of God, the temple in all its glory, very clearly started in the beginning of the book. Then we start to see the sin of the people. And then what does God do with sin? The judgment of God on sin. And then lastly, how do we make that right? Restoration back to God, if we have responded rightly to God's judgment of our sin. 
As you would read through this book personally, as we're going to fly through it here quickly, this is what you will find. I want you to turn to chapter 1. Chapter 1. We're going to try to fly through and take a little snapshot of many of the kings in this book. Chapter 1 and verse 7. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father now be, be now fulfilled. For if you, have, you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. And he continues, Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? He recognizes his neediness. God answers him in verse 11. Because this was in your heart and you have not asked possessions, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also... Give you riches, possessions, and honor such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. What's the extent of the wealth that God gives him? Verse 14, he gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders would buy them at Kew, from, from Kew for a price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels and a horse for 150 and as you continue to read through here, you realize that Jeff, uh, Jeff, Jeff Bezos is what Solomon was, except multiplied. The Elon Musk of his day that knew how to garnish and galvanize resources and people to accomplish amazing things, almost beyond comprehension, that was Solomon because of how God gave him the wisdom to manage these things. And it's, it's clear in the first part of Solomon's reign that he's prioritized God above all else. God blesses him for keeping him central. His vision, his ability to plan and multiply resources, his spiritual leadership. And it's interesting, as you read in Second Chronicles, we don't really see as much of the sin portrayed as we do elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, we, we see it a little bit in chapter 8. He marries, Pharaoh, he marries Pharaoh's daughter, almost like a marriage alliance kind of a power alliance, really. But he won't even allow Pharaoh's daughter that he has married to come and live in the house of the king because he knows that she, is, she worships a pagan god. The, the text even draws our attention to that. But that's the only mention. We're not, we're not told about the, the downfall of the, the many wives and, the, and the, the vices that Solomon has that I think he even testifies to in Ecclesiastes. That's not the focus here. The verdict that we see in, in Solomon, it's mostly good. Um, here's a, a brief chart, if just kind of following along the assessment of Solomon, mostly a good king, as, as Second Chronicles portrays for us. He has a son, Rehoboam, and he listens to sinful counsel. Look at chapter 12, chapter 12 and verse 1. He listens to sinful counsel. He brings oppression to his people. Chapter 12 
and verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because he had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, come, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen, and the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukim, and Ethiopians. Okay, so we, we, we see the plunder, the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 5, why is all this happening? Thus says the Lord, second half of verse 5, You abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. That's why this is happening to Rehoboam. God was supposed to be central. His people, preeminently the leader of his people, had sinned. God judged. How did the people respond to this judgment? Verse 6, Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. Verse 7, When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. The verdict on Rehoboam's life is mostly bad. And, and down in verse 15, he did not, he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. The verdict on Rehoboam, it's mostly bad. We go from the, high, the highest point in the, in the kingdom, his son is not a great leader. In fact, he's a wicked leader. Abijah, interestingly, Abijah is mostly good. How do you, mood swings here, you know, emotional whiplash as we're thinking about these people, Abijah was mostly good. He, he's in a very difficult battle situation against the Israelite king Jeroboam, and he calls out to God, and God actually delivers. We're not told much else about him in this book. We have a good assessment. Now, look at chapter 14, Asa. Asa is an interesting character. Chapter 14, verse 2. And Asa did what was good and right, in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He was leading spiritually. Look in chapter 15 and verse 15. Even Maacah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. There's zeal. Even his own family members, he is not going to allow special privilege if they are not pursuing the Lord wholeheartedly. He shows no partiality in his spiritual leadership. Chapter 16 and verse 1, however, trouble comes. And, and we'll just read it. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come into King Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Badad, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus. And, and we won't continue reading. He's using his ingenuity and even bordering on sacrilege and going ahead and grabbing the temple stuff to use it. He's not, as a gut response, seeking the Lord 
for deliverance and for help. Down in verse 7, at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? He's referring to another situation in his reign that God had rescued uh, a, a greater deliverance, you might say. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. How does Asa respond? Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties on some of the people at the same time. Asa, who had led so seriously and and significantly earlier in his reign, takes, takes a very bad turn. Look at verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. We see the centrality of God in Asa's reign at the beginning, but near the end of his life, in difficulty, he does not seek the Lord. He ends very badly. He begins good, but he finishes bad. Maybe there's a better leader. Maybe Jehoshaphat, his son. Jehoshaphat, in general, is a good leader. The text even draws attention to the fact that he even removed the high places. High places were places that had been established not in Jerusalem, but far away to make it easier for people to worship. But that wasn't God's prescription. And in fact, sometimes idols were set up there. And so a lot of times a measure of a king's faithfulness to God is whether or not they went to the extent of removing the high places. So the text draws our attention to that. But in the middle of uh, Jehoshaphat's reign, we're not going to walk through all of his life, but he makes some really dumb decisions. He, he aligns with a wicked king, Ahab. You know Ahab, one of the most wicked kings, most notable, had a really wonderful wife, Jezebel, who helped him be even more wicked. Jehoshaphat's, um, Jehoshaphat's son, it's interestingly, if we were to zoom ahead, he marries Ahab's daughter. And that, pro- that friendship, that, 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 that alliance may be started when Jehoshaphat makes the poor decision in a, in a time of battle to align with this wicked king, Ahab. At the, time, at the same time, he's good in other ways. There's a wonderful account where Jehoshaphat leads the people in crying out to God for deliverance. A really, a really uh, meaningful interaction that, that Jehoshaphat has with God and with his people in leading them in crying out for deliverance from certain death. And then look at chapter 20. Look at chapter 20 and verse 35. Chapter 20 and verse 35. One of really the better kings that we read about. But then verse 35, and after this... Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly. Didn't, didn't he already learn about foolish alliances? He almost gets killed because King Ahab says, hey, when we go out to battle, this is earlier in his reign, when we go out to battle, how about you dress up like me so that they won't know who I am? And Jehoshaphat, the text doesn't comment on it, but he does it. 
And thankfully, God rescues him, but he's already made foolish decisions. He makes the same decision again at the end of his life. Verse 36, he joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish. Then they built the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavahu of Marisha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. An otherwise great reign, an otherwise great king, finishes very poorly. Jehoram, it's, it's, it's really despicable and very depressing to read through Jehoram's reign. In verse 4 of chapter 21, we see that when Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father, which was Jehoshaphat, and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. In verse 5, we see that he was 32. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel to be distinguished from the kings of Judah. And as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Remember, that may have, might have had to do with what Jehoshaphat allowed his son to interact with the wicked king's daughter, Ahab's daughter. And, and the text tells us that's one of the significant aspects of Jehoram's evilness was because of this marriage to this evil lady. And he did what was evil in sight of the Lord, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. God's promise, the anchor of God's promise remains. What a commentary. Look at the end of chapter 20, the end of Jehoram's wicked reign. This is what it's like. If you live a life not setting your heart after God, verse 20, he was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed with no one's regret. What a tombstone. What a tombstone reading. What a way to go out. He departed with no one's regret. Ahaziah, moving on to the next king, Ahaziah, Jehoram's son, Verse 3 of chapter 22, he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. His mother, Athaliah, eventually uh, comes to power because God kills uh, Ahaziah. Athaliah, his mother, the wife of Jehoram, reigns in his place. And mother is uh, a great person. She has everyone killed in the royal family besides one person that she didn't realize that she missed, Jehoshabeth. Um, we won't go into all the details here, but it's a fascinating, intriguing story. Um, uh, Jehoshabeth is, um, is it Jehoiada the priest. His wife is Jehoshabeth. And she scoops up Joash and hides him in the temple, in the house of the Lord, for six years. And Jehoiada and her garnish the, the, the leaders in Israel, in, in Judah, to come and to help him come to power. Athaliah is killed. Eventually, Ahaziah comes, I'm sorry, Joash comes to power through this interesting turn of events. But it's an ugly setting, an ugly part of the story. Joash, good king, but in verse 15 to 19 of chapter 24, he, he's just gotten done rep- repairing the temple He's leading well. He began well. Verse 15 of chapter 24. But Jehoiada, 
grew old. That's the, the priest that kind of was Joash's mentor that had helped protect him, brought him into power, and, and leads him spiritually. He dies. He grew old and full of days, and he died. And he was 130, old, 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God in his house. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath, judgment on sin, the wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Such a great beginning, such promise spiritually, and he throws it away. That's the end of Joash's life. Amaziah, we're not going to take the time to, to go much through Amaziah. He starts out well. I'm sorry, I'm getting behind. I'm, I'm not assuming that you're taking notes on all these, but just, just noting on the assessment, the up and down, the mostly bad endings of these sometimes good kings. Amaziah, he leads in a way that's pretty good, but then he finishes poorly. Uzziah, he starts out good, but then he finishes bad. King Uzziah, maybe your mind's eye is going to Isaiah 6. Remember that? In the, king, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And we have that special vision that Isaiah has with God. That's when Uzziah dies. That's what's going on. Isaiah is a prophet during this time. Jotham, Jotham, in chapter 27 and verse 6. How does he respond to success? Chapter 27 and verse 6. Jotham. There's a large verse 5 about the, the, the success that he has. Verse 6, And so Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord. There's actually not a lot of commentary other than the fact that God blessed him because he was pursuing the Lord wholeheartedly. Jotham, it's good. Ahaz was pretty bad. Chapter 28, verse 5, Therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took a bunch of people captive. Look at, look at uh, chapter 28, verse 19. Chapter 28 and verse 19. So, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz. They had to suffer because of Ahaz's sin, because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and the house of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Syria, but it did not help him. Verse 22, how does, how does Ahaz respond to God's chastening of him and of the people? Verse 22 of chapter 28, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord this same king Ahaz. He responded in pride. He hardened his heart against God's call to him to repent. Hezekiah. Hezekiah leads the people of Israel in much needed reform. After a period going through like Ahaz led them in, they needed much reform. King Hezekiah cleanses the temple. He restores proper worship. He calls for a Passover that hadn't happened in a long time. And, and he calls the people to repentance. Look at chapter 30. Chapter 30 of, of Hezekiah's reign. Chapter 30, verse 7. Verse 7, we'll just jump in here. 
he is calling the people to repentance. The, cel- the, the Passover is being celebrated. Chapter 30, verse 7. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithful, faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. He's reminding them of punishment coming from, from turning away from God. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. How do the people respond? He's calling them to to come back to this gracious and merciful God. Don't be like your foolish fathers that suffered for their foolishness. How do the people respond? Verse 10, they're, they're, they're sending the message. So the couriers went from city, couriers went from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, verse 11, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of his by the word of the Lord. Some people mocked, some people responded in humility and renewed zeal to pursue the Lord. It's interesting, at the end of Hezekiah's life, he has this fatal sickness and he asks God for deliverance. God gives him extended life. But God's wrath actually is extended toward him because he's not grateful. He, he, God, God expresses that to him and says, why didn't you express and respond rightly to me when I gave you deliverance? God's wrath is, is on him for that. At the very end of his life, he though humbles himself in responding to God's wrath being poured out on him. He's an up and down person, maybe sometimes like you and I are. Good. We do something foolish. We're pushing up against God. God rebukes us for that in, a, in, in any number of ways. How do you respond to God's chastening? Do you respond in humble repentance? Manasseh, one of the most unsurpassed evil kings in all of the history of Judah. We'll get back to him in just a little bit. Ammon is bad. Josiah is a high point in the people of Israel's, um, in the people of Judah's kings. He's good. He, has, he still has a flaw at the end of his life, though. You, maybe you're familiar with King Josiah. He restores temple worship. He has the, the word of the Lord read, and he's like, they have to blow the dust off of the word of the Lord, and they read it, and he realizes, we are absolutely rejecting God's laws. We need to do something. He responds rightly. He has a flaw at the end of his life. It's funny if it's not funny, it's interesting to note the end of Josiah's life is parallel to the end of Ahab's life. If you want to compare the end of Ahab's life, remember wicked King Ahab, how he dies? A soldier at random pulls a bow and it strikes him. He's killed in his chariot. That's actually how Josiah dies as well. On purpose drawing that parallel, no doubt, on, on the part of the chronicler. The rest of them, it just kind of goes bad. Jehoah has neither good nor bad. He was one of the kings. Eliakim's bad. Jehoiakim is bad. 
Zedekiah, who's uh, the brother of, um, so, so you have Jehoahaz, he's deposed, and, and the people that are having them in captivity um, say, oh, actually, Eliakim, you're going to be the king. Same thing happens with Zedekiah, brother of, of Jehoiakim. They finish badly. So if you're to walk through this book yourself, you'll see this repetition, the centrality of God. The centrality of God. You don't have to turn there, but Amaziah struggles to keep God central. Verse, 20, verse 2 of chapter 25, a helpful for, a reminder for us. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart, the text says. It's possible for God's people to kind of do the right thing, um, do right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. That's the Holy Spirit's commentary on Amaziah. What, what is keeping you from letting God be central in your life? I think a lot of Christians, at least in America, because we can afford to, we, there, there's, there's you know, little risk of being a Christian, you might say. A lot of Christians, um, for them, God is part of their life. Yes, I'm a Christian. I, go, I show up to church on Sunday morning. Um, I drop something in the offering every once in a while. God is part of my life. But that was what the problem was with these kings. God was only part of their life. He did not wholeheartedly pursue the Lord. What, what about your family's habits? What about your family's rhythm of life demonstrates to your own family, demonstrates to your unsaved friends, demonstrates to God himself that he is central and he is preeminent. He's not just one of the many pieces of your life that make you feel good. I'm a good person. I do the church thing. And also I get to enjoy all this other stuff too. But if, if those other things kind of get in the way, well, then I, I won't show up to church because there's these other things too. That's someone who maybe is, is right in the eyes of the sight of the Lord, but is not pursuing him with a whole heart. Beware, your family rhythms are going to catechize your children as to what really is most important. Maybe, maybe you do have a time of family worship. But the most significant learning that your kids will have from you is the way you live your life. What, what does it take to keep you from God? What does it take to keep you from God's people gathering? If, if, if other things are allowed to take the place of God and, and worship and gathering with his people, you're teaching your children, yeah, that's kind of optional. Church is optional. Yeah, I mean, it's important, but it's dispensable if other things get in the way. Are you or are you not pursuing God with a whole heart? Is that obvious to your family? Is that obvious even to your unsaved friends? They know what to expect of you. They know that your sport is just as important as your church because you're not at church. I thought you were supposed to be at church. It's, doesn't your church meet? They actually expect you to be consistent with who you say you are, a follower of Christ. Are you willing to pursue God wholeheartedly? That's what the kings of Judah struggled with. 
God is to be central. And if he is not, sin will take its place. That's what we saw. I didn't mean to advance. The sin of the people. Those to wh- for whom God was not central, sin quickly swept in. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. We mentioned that at the beginning. But also the sin of the people reminds us that the incorruptible leader will never be corrupted if he's the one who's the leader. That's what a lot of the Old Testament is, is screaming for. If only we could have a perfect leader. If only we could have a leader who had zero flaws on his record, who led us toward the Lord and never had a lapse in judgment, who always perfectly led us, who never gave up on his convictions to be right with the Lord. Christ himself would be the only leader who could perfectly lead his people. That's what First and, Chron- First and Second Chronicles is yearning for. Surely there would be a perfect leader. There would be, there will be a perfect leader that we sang about early. One, uh, earlier, one day there will be the perfect Christ who will have absolute power and will use it perfectly. That's what they never had in the days of Israel and of Judah. There was judgment for sin. God punishes sin. And how are we to respond? I want you to turn, lastly, to what we began our message with, chapter 7 and verse 14. With this, we're done. How are we to restore relationship? Maybe we haven't been wholeheartedly pursuing the Lord. Maybe it's been this, that, and the other thing that crowds in to our time with God and His Word, to our time with God and His people. How do we make that right? Chapter 7 And verse 14, perhaps familiar verses. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, you've maybe seen this verse in a graphic with an American flag in the background. If my people... That's reading someone else's mail. This verse was not written to uh, the United States of America. As much as that might rouse us and make us feel patriotic, that's not, what God, that's not who God is talking to. It's referring to Israel. For us to read United States into that is, is kind of making the text say what we want it to say instead of letting the text say what God said it said, right? But that doesn't mean cross that out. It means, yet the principle still remains. People can rightly be related to God by, as the verse says, humbling themselves. Throughout the book, uh, the, the two books of First and Second Chronicles, the word humble or humility shows up 19 times. If you read almost the same exact accounts back in the Kings and, and uh, the, book of, the books of Samuel, you see the word like twice. This is a repeated theme that the writer is on purpose reminding us of. Humble yourself. It reminds us of James 4 and verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Sometimes for someone to come to Christ for the first time, all of a sudden their life gets not easier, but way harder. Now I have indwelling sin, and I have the spirit that wants to push up against it. Now i got to start reorienting my life around God's priorities. This is going to be hard, and it takes humility. 
And if you have humility, you are going to receive more and more of God's grace to continue to do those hard things. But if you in pride say, no, I will just give God my lip service and he can have this much of my life, but not the other parts of my life, you're going to get God's military stiff arm, opposition, James 4 and verse 6. I want you to turn to chapter 33. I lied to you. I'm sorry for that. Because I want us to see the worst king confronted and how he responds. Chapter 33 and verse 9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Verse 10, how does he respond when surely there's going to be judgment for that kind of leading of the people? Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Verse 12, and when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the Lord God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Don't ever say that you've sinned so much that God would never forgive you. The almost worst king actually receives God's favor in response to his humility. Don't believe the lie that you're kind of beyond getting right with God. I've made so much of a mess, God wouldn't take me. I don't think you could outdo Manasseh in how he not only sinned wickedly, but he had a bunch of other people do it too. You can't probably outdo that. But how does God respond when even that kind of sinner humbles himself? He receives forgiveness, he receives mercy. If you will humble yourself and wholeheartedly pursue the Lord, you will receive grace. You will receive mercy.